Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. Um, it is a pinch and a punch to you all, 1st of November. We've got a, uh, a couple of wonderful guests. We've got, um, uh, first of all, Professor Michael Toole from the Burnett Institute. Michael Toole's uh, an epidemiologist, and some of you may have caught his um, article in the Sydney Morning Herald in, uh, in conversation in other places where he was doing some compare and contrast um, with um, uh, Australia's response, uh, Victoria even more particularly in some respects, um, in comparison to the new wave of um, of, uh, of outbreaks of COVID around the world. And uh, later in the show, we were having uh, Kate Kenfield. Kate is a uh, speaker, writer and educator based in Melbourne. And she's developed a unique box of cards called Tea and Empathy. Um, these cards are used by people all around the world to help communicate in um, relationships. I'm going to get uh, Kate on the, uh, on the phone very, very soon. Um, and uh, then very, and then to close out the show, we've got some wonderful news from, um, from Neonatal and um, we're looking forward to celebrating a major milestone in his medical career um, later on. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're on Radiotherapy with myself, Panel Beater, and somewhere out there in the ether is um, Dr Sharma and Neonatal, and we're still trying to get to the bottom of uh, where they may or may not be. But... It is my great pleasure to welcome our first guest for the morning, and it's Kate Kenfield, who, as I mentioned just before that uh, track, um, is a speaker, writer, and educator based in Melbourne. And her work's been focusing on improving people's emotional literacy and well-being. And to that end, Kate's developed a unique box of cards called Tea and Empathy. These cards have been used by people all around the world to help them form stronger relationships, both personal and professional, and that's uh, something we're really looking forward to unpacking there um, in the distinction. Kate holds a Master's in Public Health from University of Melbourne and a Bachelor's uh, in Anthropology from the University of California at Berkeley. Welcome, Kate. I hope you can hear me. I can hear you perfectly well. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's really wonderful to have you on and um, and at a different time than we'd initially planned. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to go with the flow of the morning. <laughs> oh, good on you. Good on you. Much appreciated. Hey, welcome to Triple R. I know you're no stranger to the show or no, to the station. <laughs> Uh, no, indeed. Yeah. Um, now, you've got this box called Tea and em uh, Empathy, and I'm just holding it up to the microphone to show it to the listeners. And <laughs> it's a, uh, a box of cards. Now, I'll leave yeah. you to take the description of what it is from there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, um, it's essentially it's a box of cards, and each card has a different feeling on it. And three related feelings on it. And the, the purpose of the cards is to help give people language to describe whatever it is that they're going through. 
it can often be difficult for people to come up with the words to describe um, the things that they're experiencing in their life. And um, I went through quite a difficult experience in my own life that I found it difficult to communicate. And the, the cards were something that I came up with to help me better communicate with the people in my life. And, um, and I wanted to help other people going through similarly difficult things to, to do the same thing. And um, since, since I created it, I've been using it in trainings to, um, to teach lots of different types of people um, how to use the cards and how to um, communicate better in their relationships. So, Kate, what's, what's on these cards? Yeah, so it's each, each of the cards, um, they have different, different feelings that ranging from things that are kind of more, um, more enjoyable emotions um, to things that are much more challenging emotions. So regardless of what someone's experiencing, whether it's something that's um, more joyful um, or something that's much more complex, like a, um, a difficult, um, more um, kind of overwhelming experience, regardless of what it is, they can pull different cards to, to create kind of a um, constellation of feelings that describes what it is that they're experiencing. Right, so is it is it um, all ages? Uh, I mean, I'd say that you. It's uh, the youngest that I've ever used them with is maybe about age twelve. Um, but it's it's mostly I've used them with adults. People have written to me saying that they've used them with their kids with guidance. Um, there's nothing. There's nothing inherently adult about them, but it, it's more. Um, it's more just a matter of knowing the vocabulary. Um, there's there's a number of um, similar tools out there designed for kids with really basic um, feelings words, and I, I wanted to create a um, create a tool that was designed much more for complicated adult feelings. So it's just, definitely designed more for grown-ups. <laughs> right, gotcha. So in that case, can you sort of like build a couple of scenarios for us? Um, is it is it for maybe couples to use, or would you use it in a group situation? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people use them in couples. Um, I, I get lovely emails from people all the time who say that they use them in their relationships to just as like a general check-in. So people will um, just pull a handful of cards to describe where they're at, how their how their week was going, to to communicate to their to their partners in a more in-depth way. Um, how they're going? Because it can be if you just ask someone, "Oh, how was your day?" They might just give the default, oh, I'm fine, or oh, it was a bit rough, but they don't give more language than that. But actually having that prompt of the cards gives them um, a, a tool to describe that language more in depth and can be a jumping off point for more, uh, for deeper, more meaningful conversations. What do you reckon are the preconditions for people to get the most out of this? Uh, I think just an openness to have deeper conversations. It's been amazing to me how it's not one type of person that seems to be um, attracted to using them. It's it's not just people who um, are kind of in general more in touch with their emotions. Sometimes it's people who, who know they, they want to be um, more emotive in their language. Um, I, I got a, a wonderful email recently from from a man who who used them with his daughter. She was going through a particularly rough time, and he said that the cards allowed him to have um, one of the, the more deeper and meaningful conversations he'd ever had with her. She was, um, I think he said she was she was eighteen years old, um, and that allowed him to have that deeper conversation with her. Um, and would it be um, 
whoops, sorry, would it be um, true to say that this is not just, say, like an emotional, you know, people talk of emotional intelligence, don't they, you know, and, and some people are, are better equipped than others to communicate their feelings and how they're going on, but this might, and at first I thought this was perhaps just a mental health type tool, but you've been talking about it using it in professional contexts as well. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think I think emotional intelligence is about um, a number of different skills, and um, one of the key skills there is is being aware of your emotions. and And I think in order to be aware of your emotions, you have to have the language to describe them. and And I think that this is a tool that allows people to um, to sit with their own feelings and to sit with the feelings of other people. And, um, so it, it it allows for for both of those things. It's self awareness and and other awareness. So I think that there's more to emotional intelligence than just that. But I think that that's that's quite that skill of self awareness and other awareness is quite foundational to building that emotional intelligence. I've got a sense that this would be useful for people who are. Um, who perhaps work in certain situations, and I'm thinking of healthcare workers, for example, under yeah. enormous stress in, um, say, yeah. whether that be uh, emergency wards or, say, in a, in a coronavirus ward, for example, where they, they want to involve their friends and family to help them understand what that particular type of stress is like, but may have never been able to communicate that kind of thing to anyone other than colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've done a number of trainings with healthcare workers, and what they tell me is that um, the field uh, as a whole can be quite um, uh, toxic in terms of um, bullying and and not always providing a space to have um, healthy processing of feelings. And and they they tell me that it can be they've had to kind of find their own way of healthily processing. Um, their feelings and finding good outlets to um, handle their mental health and in a way that works for them. Um, so it's it's absolutely something that can be part of someone's overall um, self care practice when you're dealing with that kind of intense stress. I think it would be one piece of that puzzle. Certainly, we're talking with uh, Kate Kenfield about her. Uh set of cards um, is the, simply the best way to describe them um, called Tea and Empathy. Um, Kate, the other, the, the other group of people that I think might sometimes have difficulty communicating uh, their situation to others um, are people who are living with chronic pain. Um, would, that be, would that be the case? I mean, that's something that only people who have experienced such things um, can really, you know, understand. And you can talk to other people who have got chronic pain or perhaps some medical experts. But again, friends and family, right? Yeah, yeah. So that, that was really how my journey with this started. So I, um, I had experienced my, the occasional migraines for, for most of my life and then um, suddenly started having migraines chronically. And and that was such a life-altering experience that was so difficult to communicate to people, um, and that that was really my um, my reason for for creating these cards and wanting to do these these trainings. Um, and as as part of that experience, I started talking to a lot of other people that had chronic pain conditions, and they they were experiencing a lot of what I was experiencing. Which um, when when we talked to people about chronic pain often what we'd be on the receiving end of was just a lot of unsolicited advice and, um, and cliches and things like that about 
um, about our chronic pain, um, like, oh, have you tried, have you tried yoga or these essential oils or, um, oh, you know, everything happens for a reason. These sort of unhelpful statements rather than um, just being present with our feelings. Um, and and <laughs> it's, a, it's a frustrating thing that, that you'll often hear from people who, who have chronic pain. Yeah, really. And, um, <laughs> and um, it, it often comes from the, it often comes from a really well-intentioned place, um, but it's still um, quite a quite an unhelpful thing. And and if you can actually um, just be present with feelings with something that someone's going through, it can be um, oh, an incredible thing for deepening relationships and 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 just on a basic level being more useful. Um, so I think. Um, the the teen empathy cards as as something that's both a self care tool for someone who's in chronic pain just to um, process their own feelings, but also as an interpersonal tool to articulate to the people immediately around them what they're feeling, um, and, as well as for carers, I think to to help them process what they're feeling, I think can be quite powerful. Yeah, yeah, and probably among carers as well to some extent. Oh, certainly, yeah. certainly. Do you reckon? Um, so, say if we were talking about a couple um, who were using these these cards, um, would both of them? Would at least one of them need to have uh, you know that kind of emotional literacy, or would it be possible to two people who to, to work together, neither of whom um, perhaps had that emotional literacy? Look, in my experience with the cards, what's required is a willingness to try. Right. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily require any particular skill. I think um, what I've noticed is that people with more advanced emotional intelligence skills will um, kind of come up with new ways of using them that are uh, perhaps at a more advanced level. Um, but uh, it doesn't require... Um, it doesn't require those skills to use them. It's really just about that willingness to try and willingness to be a bit vulnerable because it's always vulnerable, I think, when you're sharing your emotions with someone else. Um, and, and it requires just to, um, this, that, that non-judgment of what someone is sharing with you. Um, and so would it be something, like I think when people hear deck of cards, they think of a game. Right, and they, they, they're <laughs> yeah. thinking that they, there's some kind of um, perhaps even strategy involved in using them. Is it <laughs> is it in any way like that? Yeah, so it's, it's been a little difficult for me to classify because I think it looks a little bit like a game, like there's an instruction booklet and a deck of cards, and I think that sort of fits into people's minds as a game. But it's it's not a it's not a game in the sense that there's there's a um, you know a winner and a loser and a one particular way that you go about. Um, about using the cards, um, so it's it's more like a a tool, like um, yeah. um, but it's it's a bit different than I think what most people would have used. The the um, it's it's almost like a a deck of tarot cards or something. But yeah, it right. Have, it, it doesn't have that kind of spiritual connotation to it. It's it's just something that um, it's a um, people often use it to go along with a journaling practice. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, describing in that way is a, a really useful way. I'm, I'm looking at them at the moment, and they're about the size of a, uh, a coffee mug coaster or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. So they might sit on the on the coffee table, and I imagine that that might be the way that they get used. You wouldn't, you could sit down and do a session with somebody, but you could also just use them as conversation starters, relatively ad hoc, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think some people will just um, 
pull a few cards to think about how they're feeling on a single day. Someone else might take an, you know, take a whole hour to explore really in depth how they're feeling with another person. It's quite a flexible tool in that regard. And, and the, the instruction booklet has a number of examples of how you can yeah. use them either on your own with one other person or with a group of people. Yeah. yeah. Kate, um, with the last uh, bit of moments we've got together, how can people get their hands on uh, these cards? Yeah, yeah. So they're they're just they're available online at tnempathy.org, and there's free shipping within Australia, and we've got um, quite an expedited shipping service. So it's um, people are getting their cards pretty quickly nowadays. Um, just so our listeners are super clear, that's T and empathy. Do they use the ampersand or is it T A N D no. empathy? Tandempathy.org. Brilliant. And we'll put those uh, links up on our after show socials. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been great talking with you, uh, Kate, and it's been uh, fabulous to hear this tool. I'm certain there's going to be a bunch of people who'll be really keen to um, to look into it. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks for being on the other end of the phone at, a, at, oh, <laughs> at an unscheduled <laughs> moment while we uh, deal with the mighty gremlins here at this end of the uh, proceedings. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Kate. We've been uh, talking with Kate Kenfield um, about her product, a box of cards, um, but they're a unique box of cards called Tea and Empathy. And as I mentioned, I'll uh, have the details of that up on Radiotherapy Socials um, at the end of the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. So we've got, um, we don't have neonatal and we don't have Dr Sharma on the line, um, unfortunately, but we do have our next guest. Our next guest uh, comes to us from uh, the Burnett Institute. Um, that many will, many of you um, will will know well, and it is Professor Michael Toole. Um, Michael's recently um, published uh, uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald was one of the articles that caught our eye in um, in recent times. And we'll post a link um, to the radiotherapy um, socials so that you can follow up on that. But we're really grateful to have um, Michael Toole on the line. Can you hear me, okay, Michael? Oh, yes, I can. <laughs> Good morning, and, and thank you, too, for your patience. I know we had a different scheduled time, but um, with all that's happening, um, it's been a bit odd. Um, one, <laughs> wonderful to have you with us. Um, now, this uh, um, response that's going on around the world, it seems at the moment um, everybody back in March was doing a little bit of guesswork, you know, intelligent guesswork about how to respond. We're now getting to um, uh, November and different countries are in different sorts of circumstances depending on the initial response they had, Um, but we're seeing a variety of responses around the world at the moment, aren't we? It's very different and, um, you know, as I said in that article, Australia and uh, a handful of Asian countries are in a vastly different space than really the rest of the world and particularly Europe and North America. And the figures that are coming out of Europe are just astonishing. Um, you know, France reported 50,000 cases in one day. Now, that's way more than Australia's reported since January. 
How do we interpret that just at the moment when we when we talk of those sorts of numbers in one day? Yeah, well, I think you know the big lesson is that you can't ease restrictions overnight, and you have to be very very cautious. And I think Victoria certainly learned that lesson. Um, and you know, during the northern summer, people were flying all over Europe, going to resorts, spas, discos, um, and of course it spread. And it's quite a predictable virus. If you, you, know, you have the right environment, it will just spread exponentially, and that's what it's doing. The US reported 99,000 cases yesterday. So we are certainly in a different space, along with South Korea, Singapore, well, Taiwan, of course, never had a second wave, nor did Thailand. They're the big... So it's really they're the big... in Asia, not all Asian countries, but it's in Asia where you'll find the success stories. I might come back to the perhaps the reasons for the success in a moment, but I, I noticed you picked up on the seasonal aspect of things uh, a moment ago. To what extent should we differentiate Australia's near future, next few months coming into summer, with the experience that uh, Europe's currently having, given that they're doing the exact opposite? Yeah, well, we have the advantage, of course, of being an island nation, and I think, you know, all around the country now, um, we've shown that we can get on top of the virus and get it down to almost zero um, local um, transmission. So Victoria's been there the last two days um, of zero cases. Sydney's still reporting one or two every day. So, you know, it's a, as I said, it's a very different universe. But we've got to remain vigilant. And I think... Melbourne and the rest of Victoria have, I guess you could call it the advantage of having lived through these restrictions and knowing we, we, we can do it. And you look at the different pattern of mask wearing in Melbourne and Sydney, um, and I think most Melburnians are prepared to keep wearing masks uh, indefinitely if that's necessary. The, yeah, the, the masks is a great uh, litmus test. People are interpreting the wearing of masks in uh, in lots of different ways. Some people are saying they might take the view that everybody wearing masks is just being a sheep and being subordinate to, you know, the state authorities. Other people are saying, no, it's a real demonstration of community-mindedness and camaraderie in the situation. There seem, is there any way that we can look at the various responses through a cultural lens with that sort of thing in mind? You mentioned Taiwan and, and South Korea, um, and I think it's reasonable to say that they're fairly homogenous societies and certainly their relationship with state authority is perhaps a bit different than, say, even in Australia, even though our response has been similar. Yes, it's very different. And most of those countries did not impose national lockdowns. Uh, Singapore did for four weeks, what they called a circuit breaker. Vietnam had a two-week lockdown. South Korea, Japan, um, Thailand, uh, Taiwan never had lockdowns. But what they did have was, as you said, a kind of culture of abiding by public health directives and a culture of wearing masks. And, and that mm. culture of wearing masks, particularly in Japan, has been there for a long time, and it's aimed to protect friends and family. Um, you know, if you have a cold or the flu, people automatically wear masks to protect others. So that's a very important culture. I think that has now emerged in Melbourne. But it, you know, it was, it took some time. Um, I went to a bar last night 
um, for the first time since March. And it was just around the corner in Elwood. We were sitting outside at tables of four. People wore their masks unless they were eating or drinking. Um, no one was mingling from table to table. No one was walking around with their glass. So I think, you know, we're prepared for the new normal. And um, I think it's easier for us than perhaps in Sydney or Brisbane. Yeah. Um, because we're used to it. Speaking of being used to it, uh, the other thing that occurs to me is that a number of the uh, Asian countries that we've mentioned, they experience SARS. Um, and, you know, the, although SARS hasn't, you know, in, in numerical terms, hasn't been as um, dominant uh, an issue as has COVID, um, nevertheless, just that experience surely has something to do with it as well. It did. Um, those countries, particularly Taiwan, Hong Kong and Vietnam, and to some degree South Korea. But South Korea has experience with another epidemic of Middle East respiratory syndrome. So they were prepared. The government had plans, and they implemented them very, very early on. The Taiwan closed its border back in um, January, and they've only had just over 500 cases in a population about the same as Australia. And South Korea's had a more bumpy um, journey, as has Singapore and Japan. Um, I think a lot of, you know, they're getting through the second waves, partly because of that culture, a very good um, test and trace system. Right. Very, very tight. Yep. Um, New South Wales and Victoria have basically adopted the same system uh, as those countries, and you know, both systems are working well at the moment. In Europe. One thing about Vietnam was an excellent communication strategy. Right. Well, they had very innovative uh, communications through the state media, through social media. There was a, um, a song um, about hand washing that went viral all over the world. Um, you know, very innovative stuff. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Sharma, um, neonatal, and myself, we've often made a comment over these past months just how conspicuous by its absence, you know, that kind of pop public health campaign um, has been. Like, it's, it's, it's been missing. You know, the, we were wondering, you know, where's the equivalent of, say, slip, slop, slap sort of situation? We haven't had that. No, I think other than the, the Magda video, oh, that yeah. was very good, yeah. uh, we haven't had um, anything particularly that appeals to adolescents. And adolescents are very vulnerable not so much to getting sick from the virus, but, of course, for passing it on to their parents, grandparents and teachers. And so I would have thought some really innovative, targeted messaging to adolescents would have been useful. Yeah. Just coming back to tracing, which you just touched on a moment ago, um, in your article you talked about Japan doing upstream contact tracing. Can you expand on what that is? Sure. So in traditional contact tracing, once someone is diagnosed with the virus, you go out and find all the people they've been in contact with since they had symptoms. In upstream, so that's really downstream or forward, um, upstream or backward uh, contact tracing is finding people who were in contact with that case before they had symptoms. So in doing so, you might identify someone who maybe didn't have any symptoms but was the start of a cluster. And um, Sydney's been doing that for some time and now Victoria has been doing that 
the last three clusters. That was um, Kilmore, Shepparton, and the northern suburbs of Melbourne. So that, that basically doubles the number of contacts. And it's hard to do when you've got a, a right. large number of cases. Yep. But it's much easier to do you know, with these single-digit cases. Talking about, um, say, expertise and, and data management, so all this data collection through either tracing programs or just um, through modelling of, um, of virus spreading and so on, um, with all that... To, with all that in mind, to what extent does luck play a bit of a part? I had somebody say to me the other day, you know, despite that uh, hotel quarantine issue, it seems that New South Wales has been lucky. And I said, well, they've been managing it. And, but then I, I, I sort of reflecting on it and go, perhaps luck has played a bit of a part. I think luck plays a big part of it because this virus tends to cluster so it's not like flu. So flu kind of spreads in a, in a kind of linear fashion. You know, one person picks another and then they take two more. Um, this virus doesn't behave that way. And you've probably heard of these super spreading events. Um, the first one was documented in Washington State in the US where choir practice, 58 of the 61 people attending got the virus and three died. Yeah. So, you know, there was a quarantine leak in Sydney. Where three security guards at a hotel tested positive. But it didn't take off. They may have had you know, a low amount of virus. Perhaps they just weren't mixing much. Um, perhaps they didn't live in a large family. So it was kind of luck. Now, luck aside, back in June, Victoria relaxed their restrictions to allow 20 people in the household. It went up from five to 20 overnight. And that happened to coincide with a religious festival. And so in the northern suburbs, you had these large family gatherings, most of which were quite legal for 20 people. So it spread very rapidly. Some of those people worked in high-risk workplaces like aged care homes or hospitals. Um, and then it just took off. It took off and the trade tracing system was overwhelmed and it took some time to reverse that right right what with just the last few minutes that we've got together um professor tool and we're talking with uh, professor michael tool from the burnett institute um professor tool what uh what does the immediate future look like as far as you can see um for australia and perhaps what lessons we might learn from um what's currently going on in europe and perhaps even the united states well, vigilance, caution, responsibility. Um, you know, I was very relieved that the Premier last Sunday announced that only two people visit another household. Mm -hmm. So they're obviously avoiding that, that sort of rush last time. But I would think we won't get to 20 um, by Christmas. You know, I would think maybe it'll go two to four to maybe six and maybe 10, you know, right. but they're going to take it very, very gradually. And I think that's the most important thing, other than physical distancing and mask wearing yep. and hand washing. You know, this is, as we start to have summer gatherings in parks and birthdays and stuff, we must keep up that hand washing and wear a mask when you're not eating or drinking. Right. Um, and I think we can see it too because we're an island, you know, 
downside is that we're you know, not going to be able to engage with the rest of the world for some time. Yeah, so yeah. I would hope there'll be some travel bubbles, not just with New Zealand, but other Pacific islands like Vanuatu, maybe Taiwan, um, eventually even China, you know, because there's hardly any virus in China. <laughs> yes, the irony, the irony. And perhaps just by way of a wrap-up question, uh, the one that's probably on a lot of people's mind, where are we at as far as you can tell with um, a vaccine? There was some news during the week um, that the Oxford trials um, have taken another step forward. What's your read? Well, you know, there's currently um, about 10 sort of strong candidates that are in um, big community trials. So I would expect one of them at least will um, emerge as effective. But to me, the challenge is going to be distribution. So yeah. Pfizer has a vaccine, which may be the first one. It has to be stored at minus 80 Celsius. <laughs> so, you know, does your local GP have a... <laughs> down to minus 80? Yeah, that's and right. it has to be two doses. Yeah. So the logistics are going to be... Yeah, not just storage. Just, yeah, not just storage. Just the the distribution, the transport of it, at um, with those sorts of requirements. Yeah. Um, Professor Tool, um, I'm sorry we've got to have a truncated conversation um, this morning, um, but I, I think we've covered a lot of ground, and I'm sure our listeners um, have really appreciated having some time with you. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Ken. Thank Bye. you. Bye for now. We were speaking with um, Professor um, Michael Toole from the Burnett Institute about the various responses around the world to um, the latest wave of COVID outbreaks. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Really importantly, I wanted to uh, get in touch with Neonatal. Neonatal, can you hear me on the phone? I can. Can you hear me? Oh, it's wonderful to be able to hear you. You're sounding pretty <laughs> foggy. Lord knows what was going on with Skype. I could see you on the screen. Um, everything looked like it was good. Everything was the same as previous weeks. We just didn't quite get there. But with the uh, minute that we've got left, you've got some news. Yes, yes. No, I, um, I recently just graduated, actually. So um, moving from uh, medical student to full-fledged doctor. You're, you're the real thing. The real thing. We can, uh, we can see you for malpractice yes. now. Yes, exactly. Great. Um, I'll, I'll expect all Triple R to be, uh, to be jumping on that bandwagon soon enough. <laughs> Um, look, congratulations. That's um, that's no small thing. And um, although we were planning to spend some time talking about what it actually means for your professional life going forward, we might come back to that in um, in the in our next show. Um, but congratulations. And just so we're not going to call you neonatal anymore, are we? No, I think we all decided on a bit of a name change. Um, so we'll stick with the same. But I think uh, Dr. Neo as the, uh, the new name. Brilliant, brilliant. Dr. Neo it is, um, and uh, congratulations to you. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.